I mean, that that book took me a long time because during that time I was separating from my partner. And after I moved out of that house, there's something about that separation. Uh, I moved out kind of in the middle of COVID lockdown and it just gave me this clarity into how I could end the novel. It gave me this insight into what was wrong with the character and I finished it. If you're a busy mom, but you have writing goals and dreams that you're working on, this podcast is here to help you achieve them. My name is Jackie, and I'm a mother and an author of a self-published young adult novel and a firm believer in the power of moms to create. This podcast is about finding inspiration and insight. It's about learning new ways to fuel your writing and to share your writing with the world and sometimes actually all the time it's about taking a moment to just laugh at and appreciate everyday chaos that is being a writing mother. Hey guys it's Jackie welcome to another episode of These Moms Write. If you haven't already sign up for my podcast Facebook group this is your insider space where you can share questions and chat with show guests and other listeners. All right so today I want to share a talk I had with Sunyi Dean. Sunyi is a science fiction fantasy writer who lives in Leeds, England with her two young children. Her debut novel, The Book Eaters, is scheduled for publication on August 2022 through Tor USA. Getting to where she is today was not easy. In this talk, Sunyi shares the challenges she has overcome and is overcoming as a new author, a single mother of two autistic children, and also a woman with autism herself. Sunyi really pulls back the curtain and shares what it it means to be published, what it looks like, what the challenges are and have been for her, and why you may not want to be published traditionally at all. So without further ado, please welcome Sunyi Dean. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's good to hear from you. Yeah. Tell me about The Book Eaters. It's a kind of mishmash novel. It is, I know everyone says their novels are genre-bending, but it is, it's meant to be a bit crossover fiction, so... It's a kind of sapphic, slightly gothic novel set in the alternate 90s Yorkshire, which is North England. And it's about a hidden society of human-like people who eat books. Uh, the books they eat influence them in a variety of ways. In every book they eat, they retain all of the information in it. Uh, the main character is a woman called Devon. And she has a son whose hunger is a bit more unusual. He craves human minds. He'll starve if he doesn't murder and feed, but he absorbing so many personalities is also driving him insane so it's a kind of no good options book um my editor summarized it as be gay do crime and eat books which i think is very succinct that's great so you're a mother of two how do you think that impacted your writing i wouldn't be where i am without that experience because definitely this book is all about motherhood and i think it it is very you know it changes your life i remember after my daughter was born she's my eldest just going outside and looking around and thinking, I can't believe this is normal. I can't believe we just have children and we just walk around with them like it's normal. This incredible life-changing experience is wild. What was the transformative aspect of motherhood? So you said you went outside. Was it scary or exciting? There's a P.D. James novel called Children of Men, which is about a world where children stop being born. And um, I think the film is a bit different to the book. But in the book, the main character talks about how when you have children, this terrible fear enters your life because you are always afraid that something will happen to them. You're always worried for them. You're always thinking about them. And it just completely changes your outlook and your priorities and everything realigns. 
um, and what you consider important and what you're willing to do. And I think I think that's a pivotal thing in the book for Devon that all her priorities realign when she has children and um, she does some things that are very dark or unpleasant because she makes difficult choices to protect them. I think that is such a powerful emotion, part of the emotional landscape mm-hmm. of mothering. Yeah, I just I just got some medical news about my own child this week, and so that's really brought that into the fore for me. Sorry, I'm really sorry to hear that. There's always something, I think, and I'm just dealing with one of those things right now. And so I totally, um, I love that your book plays on that and like leans into that. In sci-fi and fantasy, it's very common for the main characters to not have family, to not have mothers and fathers. And I think that's maybe done for ease. It's a lot easier to write your hero going off to war when they don't have attachments and I remember someone in a fantasy group saying once, oh, can you imagine a fantasy book where the farm boy goes off to war and his mother is kind of constantly sending him letters like, well, are you eating your lunch? And, and, and that's precisely why we don't have them in, I think. But it is an interesting dynamic that there's a lot there with family. There's, it's complicated and it adds layers and it's something we deal with every day. And uh, you still find time to write, though? I have more time than ever at the moment, actually. Uh, there, there was a point, because my, my youngest is nonverbal autistic and my daughter is, is home ed because she's autistic and can't do mainstream education. So there was a point where both kids were home all the time and neither were in school and their dad just kind of wasn't around. So that, that was very difficult to find time. But I've since separated from their dad and he has them half the week now. So I actually have half the week to get writing done and to get my admin and business side. Obviously there's a, a balance to that. You know, there's, you know, separation is its own thing, but writing wise, I still get it done. And as they get older, they sleep a little better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do recall you mentioning <laughs> that uh, they get up sometimes in the middle of the night or they wake up for the day at, at 2 a.m. I hope there's some naps or something involved. Uh, no, but it's okay because then my son goes to school. And again, it's only half the week. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that um, when my son was born, he was born three weeks early and I had specifically taken three weeks off work early. So we get a year in Canada for maternity leave. And so I thought, oh, I'll take three weeks off early before his due date and then I'll have all this writing time. It's going to be amazing. And then literally to the day he was born three weeks early, right when I was the day I left my job for mat leave. And I was like, damn it, I'm never going to get that time back. <laughs> um, but it's all good. It all works out. I, and I do agree that um, as they get older, they get more independent. For moms that are in that stage when they don't have time, did you have any strategies during that time to just like get that story out? So there was just a period of time where writing wasn't possible at all. So I think when my son was about two or three, I think then I could start beginning to write. And some things like that did help. I did try to do as much in my head as possible and then get down when I could in like 15 or 20 minutes, basically like sprints in a way. Uh, I still do sprints now. Um, Or I would be that awful parent at the park who's on their phone while their kids are in the swings because I could write in Google Docs um, and little things like that. I think it is it's really difficult to find the time. It's difficult to, you know, I get I do get a bit cross. We see sometimes writers on Twitter who are like, oh, you have to write every day. And you just know that they're like a 35-year-old guy who either doesn't have children or he has a wife 
shutting the kids away in a room somewhere. You have to be kind to yourself and know that not every day is going to be a riding day. And that's just how it is. Uh, I think it was Ter- Terry Pratchett. He famously wrote two to 400 words a day. And that was all he did. Uh, and he was still prolific with that. He still got books done, still got them written. Um, not every day has to be thousands of words. Yeah, that's a great a great piece of advice that I think really resonates for the writing mom. And can you tell me more about your own journey? Your book is about to be published. And how did you go from that place where you were you know, struggling to find the time to write to now this amazing book out in the world? I think about when I, when I was about 29, I just had this kind of early midlife crisis where I realized that I wanted to write and I hadn't written anything and I was going to hit 30 the year after and just that just kind of wasn't going anywhere with my life other than looking after small children so I started reading again I wrote down I I finished the first draft of the novel in about four months and it's like and it was so so bad it was it was really terrible um as first books often are uh, and I queried it and it didn't get anywhere I think I had 20 beta readers in a row because the first 14 just bailed on me because it was so unreadable. And it was just the whole, that whole year was a learning process. Uh, and after that, I met some people after that first year, we formed a critique group and we were kind of chatting and talking. And a lot of publishing, I think, if, you, if you're looking at it as a career, you have to be looking at what is commercial. And I think that's true whether you self-publish or traditionally publish. You, you have to be finding this point between what you want to write and what other people want to read. And that point will be different for every person. Um, so I did sit down with my critique partners and my writing friends and look at like, what have I written and why didn't it work for people? And because I think probably about five people in the world would have liked that first novel. <laughs> and I wrote the second book in about seven to eight months, I think, time frame. And I queried that and it did a lot better. And I got one offer but that's all you need and I signed with Naomi Davis at Bookends and we did a lot of edits and we went on submission and the book didn't sell you know we all hear about careering but submission is the bit afterwards where your agent pitches your book to publishers and my book was on submission for a year and a half and had about 15 publisher rejections which gives me three more than J.K. Rowling, go me. <laughs> so at this point, I'd had about 180 agent rejections and 15 publisher rejections. And that book we trumped. And after that, I kind of, I was talking to my agent and I just, I didn't want to face this whole process of writing another book again. And you don't know if it will sell, if it will go anywhere and it takes ages. And she said, oh, you should try and write an epic fantasy because because that's a, a, a safe market. And I did start one and it just didn't go anywhere. I, I didn't feel it. So I said to her, I have this idea for another contemporary fantasy. I know that you think this market's really difficult, but I'm really interested in it. And she was fine with that. And two years later, I mean, that that book took me a long time because during that time I was separating from my partner and uh, a lot of other things are going on, which I won't go into. And after I moved out of that house, there's something about that separation. Uh, I moved out kind of in the middle of COVID lockdown. And it just gave me this clarity into how I could end the novel. It gave me this insight into what was wrong with the character. And I finished it. I finished it and we went on submission. And that was a completely different experience. I was prepared for it to take another year and a half, for it to be lots of objections. Four days after we went on submission, Naomi was pinging me saying, we got an offer from Tor, basically, and it was a, a preempt, and 
ended up in like a three book deal and it was a massive whirlwind. So it was a completely different experience uh, from, you know, that first book that failed and that second book, which still failed and took a long time. And after that, yeah, we've spent a year editing and we're in production now and I'm working on a different book. <laughs> that was long. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was amazing. I got chills. I got chills in you. Okay. I, you shared a few things that I want to go back to. So that when you separated, you got clarity and you got a lightness. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? I think, I think it's, I'm trying to talk in general terms. I think it's common. We get stuck in our lives. I encounter this a lot with women who are in situations where they're very unhappy, um, where we think change isn't possible because we can't imagine a better future, if that makes sense. And because we can't imagine it, we assume it can't happen but actually drastic change when you make big changes, you, you can create new possibilities. Um, and I realized that the, the kind of the character in that book, she was stepping and stuck in the same way. She couldn't imagine a situation beyond what she was in. Uh, and, and that lack of imagination is kind of keeping her and the plot locked down. It is keeping me locked down as well. Until you could see a new future yeah. and create a different vision of your reality then you weren't able to give that to your your characters. Yeah, I think I think we write stories about ourselves in our heads. We have this kind of narrative about who we are and where our lives are going, and and we envision that arc going in a certain direction. And it's really hard sometimes to imagine yourself in a different narrative or in a different role in life. I suppose. No, I think that is so. That's so profound. It it speaks to like the transformative potential I think of writing and then mm. you know how how much emotional depth there really is to this work and would you say that like my first novel was about me when I was a teenager basically and now my second one is about me as a 40 year old middle-aged person your stages isn't it ages and stages a bit <laughs> yeah I think so my second novel is definitely kind of it was you know the characters in their 20s they're a bit younger and it was lots of 20 year old problems and actually I started that unintentionally wrote the main character in, in the second book as being autistic and I didn't know that I was autistic when I started writing it by the time I'd finished I'd gotten a diagnosis and in the edits went back and made it clear that she was so there's so much you don't even you know I never set out to put myself in books but you, you do put something of yourself in there you, you can't avoid it I think yeah no that is such a truth we do reflect ourselves in the books that we write were those first two books? Could you see yourself in them now? Yeah, I think there, there's definitely some parts of me and some parts of my lives going on in there. And do you think that, uh, like, you learned a lot through that process, through your three oh, books? Yeah, yeah. And, and through the editing as well. Um, I think I'm not, I, I write to vibe and, like, emotional arcs, and my world building can be kind of, crap <laughs> and all over the place it's just something you don't want to be when you write fantasy you don't want to be crap at world building so we spent 11 months on edits on the book eaters and and that was it. Lindsay doing these three big developmental edits and it was an education in structure and pacing and world building and she was really kind of taking me to task and I was learning a lot from that as well is there any top tips that you could share oh so one's, uh, I guess this is from my critique partner. My critique partner is Essa Hansen. She writes space opera and she's um, with Orbit. And she has this, she talked about how plot points put stress on character motivations, which I always find really useful. So you need strong motivations to support a big plot, basically. Other tips, I guess, 
I hate saying it. I did start out a pantser and now I'm very much the other way. I outline a lot. It just allows me to try lots of different things, basically. I used to just rewrite my novel over and over and now I rewrite my outlines over and over. So it's the same process, but faster. So this is like a, an amalgamation of different things I've heard from people. Never save your good stuff for later. That's one that I learned from a, an Orbit editor who is at S's editor, which is this idea that don't save all your big events for later books. Don't save all your best ideas for later moments. Sometimes if you're stuck, a really good way to change your book is to move up. What happens if you make your, your climax into your second plot point? You know, what, what does that do? And how does that shape the book? And I guess my own one would be that I used to approach editing with this mindset of what's the least amount I can do to make this scene or chapter work. And it took me a long time to get over that. So now I approach it with what does a scene or chapter need? regardless of the work involved. <laughs> it's just like a, a small change. And sometimes that means rewriting loads of stuff or throwing stuff out. And it's okay to just experiment and find what the story needs. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think just that last point, you really modeled it well, because basically you had two books that you had to like, leave behind and that didn't stop you. You didn't say, okay, this is too much work to keep going, but you just kept on going and got your third book, which now is, is the one. There's a, a lovely author called Jessie Sitanto, and she, she has this incredible story of perseverance about how it took her like seven books to get published. And I have to say, I don't have that stamina. If it took that long, I would have chucked in the towel. Um, but that's okay too. It's all right to have a limit on it, I think because it's such a punishing industry. It, I think if it taken more than three or four books, I would have just walked away and said, okay, this is going to be a hobby now because it's not worth the stress. Uh, that's maybe not like a popular, inspiring opinion, but I do think it's okay to walk away from things that don't bring you joy. So Yeah, absolutely. You do a lot of work connecting with other authors. Can you tell me more about that part of your, you know, your writing practice? When I was learning to write, I just swapped with loads and loads of people. And through that, I just met a lot of people who were at my kind of level and had similar goals and stuff. And we formed groups and we kept in touch and we kept swapping work and a good chunk of us have ended up published. I don't think that's an accident. I've seen this before in groups over and over that when people who have similar goals in mind form groups and they connect with each other and they support each other, it's really powerful. Uh, and I joined another discord and this, this was after I'd, got the book deal, but I watched a bunch of these ladies, mostly women in there. Um, Nisha was in there too. They were all queering together and supporting each other and loads of them have gotten age into this year. And it's just, it's, I think that community and connection is so strong. It just, it's not, it's not necessarily about networking. It's not like you're getting referrals from your friends and stuff, but it's about learning together and kind of supporting each other emotionally and spiritually <laughs> through publishing. And how did you find those authors? Facebook groups. There's beta swap groups, uh, Absolute Right Forums, which is a bit of a ghost town these days, but it used to be very busy. These days, Discord might be a better bet for people. I think Discord's really taken off. There's lots of writer groups there. Twitter is another good one. Um, if you tweet Naomi and ask her and tell her you're looking for a critique partner, she will pretty much always retweet that for you. And she's got like 18,000 followers so that can help people connect sometimes. You also mentioned your connections with booksellers. I don't think that's anything I've ever thought of doing. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah so publishers 
can't sell books to readers because they don't own bookstores and they don't own Amazon. So their interaction with readers is very limited. Um, and the whole publishing ecosystem is based around selling the, the editor sells like they pitch the book to their internal team and get them excited. And then they pitch it to sales and they pitch it to booksellers. And I, the, the premise is that, you know, if, if a bookseller likes your books, then say you get 10 booksellers to really be keen on your book and they each sell 10 copies, then you've sold a hundred copies for the work of pitching to 10 people. And I think it, there's, I'll try and find a link for it for you afterwards. I don't know if you want to include it, but there's a really good Instagram interview, the bookseller talking about how important it is and how much influence they have on the floor and how they can choose what goes on tables and they can choose what books to order. And definitely booksellers are your friends. They're the, the people who actually meet readers who put books into hands. Um, they will champion you. They will write reviews and they do it out of love. They do it because they just love books, which is amazing. Uh, so I just, I met a bunch on Twitter. I think when we started sending out really early arcs and galleys and they're all just like the best people, they just <laughs> love books and it's great. Ah, that's, that's a really good tip. So reaching out to booksellers on Twitter and yeah. like developing a relationship with them early in the process. Reach out to them locally as well, because something I didn't know until recently is that actually your, your local Barnes and Noble, if you don't have any story, local Barnes and Noble still has control over what they stock and what they display and having a connection with the people in your local store can actually be really helpful. And they like local authors too, because that means maybe signings, maybe foot traffic. It's a thing they can push. So if you're self-published, that's still worth having a go. <laughs> you never know what they might say. That's a great tip. And can you tell me more about the the process that you're going through now? That So much of publishing is shrouded in secrecy. The, the contract was I mean, it was, it was 40 pages long. It was a mammoth thing. I think the thing that surprised me the most is how how much is decided early on. How well your book does is basically decided from the moment it's bought. I mean, there, there's variety to that, but but that's a lot of it. You know, the amount that you're acquired for, who you're acquired for, um, what list you're acquired for before your book is in production or in edits. That's already an indication of how it's going to sell because the biggest consistent factor in how a book sells is how much money a press puts into it. And that's it, really. Like, the, I don't think there's a difference in quality between most lead titles and most mid-list titles. And their difference in sales is just that one of them had a bigger marketing budget. And that's that's reassuring because you kind of don't have to do very much yourself, but it's also disheartening because it's very unfair. Uh, there are things in, in trade publishing I would champion, but it's absolutely not a fair industry. And that's just being honest about it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great truth about that channel that people should be aware of, right? I think you need to kind of go into publishing knowing what you're willing to take from it, if that makes sense. Because there's a bit of a myth that you can kind of start out maybe the smaller advance or mid-list to work your way up. And that does happen for some people, but a lot of times the level at which you debut indicates your career trajectory. Um, and that's maybe worth knowing. <laughs> Sorry, publishing is very depressing. Yes and no, but it sounds like you're also excited about your book getting out there. Yeah, I am. But my my experience has been really good and supportive. And I've been on the, uh, a lot of publishing is all or nothing where you get loads of support, you get hardly any, and I've got the loads of support side. So I've been okay. I worry about my friends who have had different experiences or who've fallen out with their editors. Uh, yeah, I am excited for mine, but I also didn't really have a career before either so I'm kind of invested in making it work well I do think if you have a day job definitely keep it uh, because it's very 
unreliable. But how did you feel when you found it, when you got that text they'd been picked up on submission? Oh, she rang me in kind of the middle of the day and she was saying, you know, the editor read it in one night and she wants she wants to do this and I think we should go with this preempt because they, they offered us a preempt. A preempt is where a publisher offers you more money to try and keep your book from going to auction. They don't want anyone else to have a chance. But the, the downside to that is you have to decide by the end of the day. So we had to agree a deal by the end of the day if we were going to do, go that route. And it was extremely stressful, but also really good. And I didn't sleep that night, neither did my partner. I don't know if you've heard of Kate Dillon. There's a, a lady, who has she's got a list of submission stories, and those are very interesting. And they, they're, they're, they go from positive to negative, and they're all different. I haven't heard of that. So is it just because that can be a, a pretty dramatic phase, the submission? Yeah, so it's you, your agent... We'll pitch a bunch of editors and that can be anywhere from like eight to 30 or whatever, depending on your genre. And then the editors will say if they're interested or not. And if they're interested, you send them the full manuscript or your agent does. And then they read it and then it, they have to read it in between doing all their other jobs. And if they like it, they have to get their colleagues to read it in between doing their other editorial jobs. And if they like it and it goes to acquisitions, we have to come up with this, they have to come up with a sales plan and prove that they can afford it and it will make money and that they think it's a good investment. And if it passes acquisitions, then they can come back and make an offer. So there's there's loads of steps to getting a, a book deal. And it's just given me so much respect for every book I see because of the million hoops they've jumped through. I met a lady this year who went from agent to book offer in 48 hours. And I've met people who've taken... 16 years and it's just it's so wild and varying and it's very scary because it's so varying yeah my first book went through that process and actually my my agent came away from the conversation saying i think this is unsellable so oh, no i think she had a point but yeah um, but it's still harsh it's still harsh to hear it it was harsh and it was also because it was about the the concept of the book so it was a memoir i'd written a memoir yeah. about my time in the fashion industry and she said um, that young adult readers don't want to read a memoir unless you're Miley Cyrus and so I, I thought why didn't I hear this you know yeah, years ago when I was writing this People always say, don't take it personally, but it's hard not to with memoirs because it literally is personal, isn't it? So yeah, that's, yeah, that's tough. Sorry. No, no, it's just funny. You know, knowing what the market will bear, it is important. It is something to take into consideration, right? Write something that your readers will read. I think like part of the reason why the third one sold and the second one didn't is in between. Contemporary fantasy went from being a dead genre to a comeback genre. So I got unlucky with the, the first submission and lucky with the second submission. But I don't know. I think I'm, I write so slowly. I can't even try and chase trends, you know, the, <laughs> they'll be gone in six months but I'm still like struggling through the first draft there's maybe some things that can that you can do I guess in, in fantasy to try and stay commercial even if you can't catch trends and I think that's hard for writers to hear I think I had a friend who was told by his agent that you know steampunk doesn't sell and trade and they parted ways over that because he'd written a steampunk novel and yeah but I think that's such a great reality check is just to remember that yeah there's a lot of factors like you said and don't take it personally if you come up against one of those barriers, which really is about factors that you have no control over. You have to not let them basically bog you down because, yeah. you know, the stats on queering are terrible and editors buy one to three percent of agented submissions that land on their desk, which is which is a horrible figure. Wow. So, so even when you get an... Yeah. 
<laughs> one to three percent. So, I mean, if you're pitching like 10 editors, right, then that means you'd be at like technically 30 percent. So it's not as bad as like, <laughs> but it's, it's still hard. It's still kind of it, because every most people on going on submission are probably good enough to be published. And that's the scary thing. But on the other hand, you know, the statistically people who stick with it do tend to get published. I think something like writers who do two or three rounds of submission basically have a 75% chance of getting picked up or something like that. So it, it basically improves every time you get better and you know the market better and you can build connections even through rejections. Um, and that's always worth having. Yeah. It's a daunting figure, but don't focus on it too much because it's not a total lottery. <laughs> but I think that is really great. So you like the wall is high, but if you keep climbing up it, what you're saying is you will get there. Yeah. The only people I know who've just kind of walked away from submission, it was just, you know, they, they put their foot into the publishing waters. Were like, actually, I think self-pub is going to be better for me and less um, traumatizing. <laughs> Uh, and give them all the control they want and you don't get so much in trade. You mentioned you're working on another book? Contracted for three standalones, which is a bit weird. The The first book is it's finished proofreading earlier this month, so it's like in production, and then I'm trying to work on a second manuscript that has to be similar but different, but not too different, but not too similar, and <laughs> uh, kind of in the same genre. I was expecting to do a series. I didn't. I, I kind of came out of left field. This, oh, we don't envision it as a series. It needs to be three standalones. That's writing under deadline and with like kind of branding guidelines in place is an experience. That sounds challenging. What strategies do you use to move um, that forward? I ran a lot of headlines. So I spent I've spent the past eleven months editing with my editor but also working on outlines for this new book. And it, it was just writing outline after outline and, and kind of narrowing it down. Things like, oh, this is too literary. This is too commercial. This is too genre. This is too thriller. And it, looking for the thing that they would like to see more of, but which I'm interested in writing because I can't write something that I absolutely hate. And finding that that point of negotiation where we're both kind of making space for each other. Yeah, I could see then that the outline skill set that you've built up it would be so crucial for that negotiation. Yeah, so not not necessarily full outline, but I do I write query letters basically for for books, query letters and like a short synopsis. And that actually contains quite a lot of the book that you can at least talk about and negotiate with. Oh, I see. So you're writing synopses of potential books and then yeah. getting their feedback on that. Yeah. And when you write outlines, I'm so curious about this because I also <laughs> identify as a pantser. How, how do you approach that? And that sounds really weird. I don't actually feel like the process has changed. So I used to just, I would write, just kind of like, just turn out words and then I'd look at it and go, oh, it doesn't work. And I would just rewrite it. And eventually I started stopped rewriting my full chapters and started writing summaries like bullet points of my chapters and over time it's just got more and more concise until eventually I realized I was just writing outlines so it's it feels like the same process but in shorthand so I think that's why my outline is so chaotic I'll, I'll write an outline and just chuck it and write another one and chuck it and it feels like I was pouncing and I would just write chapters and delete them and, and just move pieces around I do sometimes use a kind of rough structure. There's a document called a one-page synopsis template. Sometimes I'll fill that out just to give me a sense for like, are there enough moving pieces to actually fill out a novel? And But you're still kind of making it up, you know, you're still filling it. I don't know how it works for you when you pants, you just kind of go top to bottom and see where it takes you. 
Yeah, pretty much. I think the, my first novel okay. was very like, I felt like almost like a puzzle, so many intricate pieces. So mm. this one that I'm working on now, I was like, there's gonna be no plot, no plot. It's just the person thinking things. <laughs> so I just wrote that for a long time. It's funny because my mom said, how far are you into that book? I was like, maybe a chapter. I don't know. I've got lots of pages, but I don't, they're just me thinking things. That sounds like seek, like you're looking for the vibe in the voice. That's that's cool. Right. Yeah. It's very much <laughs> in, like, totally. What about, what advice would you give yourself? Say the Sunyi that had just written that first novel. What what advice would you give her now? Um, not to spend money on it uh, because I spent money on it. And that was a regret. So there's, like, there's this whole kind of side industry around writing. Query experts who will charge you to read your query. Most of them are not very good in my limited encounters with them. Um, people who will say, oh, you need to pay for this kind of editing, this kind of editing. And the, the one that I fell prey to was a manuscript assessment because these places, like, I don't think they're, they're scams as such, but they do kind of sell themselves as, oh, if, if your novel's really good, we can be your inroad to an agent we'll pass it along to, or we can tell you how commercial it is, or we can be a magic cure. So I paid for a manuscript assessment when I basically had no money. Like I was selling jewelry to pay for this because it was about 900 quid or something, uh, which was about what it cost. <laughs> um, and this lady, she sent back this letter and she was like, I think you need to rewrite your adult novel as a YA fantasy because nobody reads adult fantasy and you need to remove four of the five point of view characters and you need to take out all the social political commentary because like this quote's burned into my brain that, that these topics are not appropriate for a novel of this kind and it was it was just it was expensive for with money I didn't have and it was crushing in a way and it was feedback that I couldn't use from essentially a random editor on their team um, and I think stuff like that you know bad advice can really derail you bad advice you pay for can really screw you up uh, and not, not to say that like some services can be helpful. So some people will pay for querying help and or developmental editing, and that can be really good. I guess just to be careful with it. Sorry, that's maybe, I don't know if that if you're looking for like more spiritual advice or but that was just my very practical advice. No, I, I love that. <laughs> okay. That was, yeah, don't pay for things. <laughs> and, and advice, be careful who you get advice from. Oh, take every rejection with a grain of salt. I mean, they're, they're, they're finding something that they don't like, but whether you need to do anything about it, it's kind of varies by what they're saying. Yeah, totally. I'm actually really impressed that you understand the complexities of it. Is that something that they go over with you or do you? No, no one will tell you anything. Um, you need to arm yourself with knowledge. And the more that you know, uh, the better the better you'll be, the safer you'll be in this industry. And for, I think for advice, it made a big impact on me. If you've heard of Brandon Sanderson, he does a, a podcast called Writing Excuses. And he had one very good episode where he says, your publisher is not your friend. And what he meant by that is not that you can't be like nice to your editor and stuff. And you can't, you shouldn't be nice to your agent because you should, you should have a nice business relationship. But these people do work for corporations who would screw you over. And you need to always look out for your own interests. I think that does mean reading up what you can, you know, don't just trust your agent to read your contract, read it yourself, ask questions, and definitely talk to other writers. I think that that's publishing tries to kind of limit your points of contact. So the only person you're talking to is your editor and it can be isolating. It'd be hard to know what's going on. And I think talking to other writers is the best way to piece that together and level out that bad power dynamic a little bit. Uh, sorry, I make it sound so bleak, but it is, 
it's not that publishing is bleak all over. It's just that it's so varied and some publishers are not great. Some editors aren't great and you don't necessarily know who you've ended up with until it's too late. Just look out for yourself and be careful. This was such an eye-opening conversation for me. I was already excited about Sunyi's book, but coming to understand the determination that she applied to make her book happen makes it so much more richer for me. I also really loved her honesty in dispelling what I know for myself has been such a fantasy land. Okay, so here are Sunyi's takeaways on getting published and what to do when you're actually getting published. Number one, if you don't have a lot of time, try 15 to 20 minute writing sprints. Number two, if you aren't in a place or space where you have the capacity to see the full range of what is possible for yourself, you won't be able to see what is possible for your characters. Number three, you are your books. Number four, don't save your best stuff for later. Number five, be ready to let go books, scenes, and characters. Number six, find your people, Facebook, Discord, whatever. They can give you the best feedback. Number seven, reach out to booksellers. Number eight, the publishing process has a lot of hoops. Even if you get an agent, it can die on submission. And if that happens, know that it is not your fault. Number nine, your publisher is not your friend, so educate yourself as much as you can about the process. If finding time to write is a struggle for you, check out my freebie tip guide on finding more time to write. Also, I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you want to hear more of. This show is really for you moms, so let me know. There's a link to my feedback form and everything else I've mentioned here in the show notes. Please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. I know you're super busy, so it means the world to me. 